Welcome to this Structural Heart-to-Heart podcast, and thank you for joining me today. I'm Ian Meredith, the Global Chief Medical Officer of Boston Scientific. Today we are going to discuss TAVA in the COVID era, and it's my great pleasure and honour to have Drs. Uh, Sherlock and Tharani join me for this broadcast. Vino, Molly, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. This is a very trying and unprecedented time. Unprecedented has been used an unprecedented <laughs> number of times in the, in, in the last couple of months, but the reality is that's true. And uh, I think what we're seeing now with this uh, ongoing um, pandemic, uh, that the uh, COVID is really here to stay for some time, at least until we have a vaccine. And... Uh, I'm very interested in how you're adapting to the, to the, the situation, how you're managing your patient flows. So perhaps, and Molly, I'll start with you and uh, you could give us some insights into how you're adapting to, to, to this situation and how you're planning ahead. Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting. When the COVID uh, first became a thing and New York got hit hard, Um, You know, as most states did, everyone shut down, even though we weren't seeing um, really any cases. We had a few, like one here or there. I'm obviously at a heart hospital, and so elective cases are our mainstay. And so everything shut down, and it was completely quiet here. So when the governor opened back up, you know, we were very excited and... um, And basically at that time we had instituted a, um, our clinic became virtual. Everything was telemedicine. We reduced the number of people in clinic um, as far as staff. So, you know, we have a very full joint clinic with uh, a number of cardiologists, a number of CT surgeons, a number of uh, NPs and whatnot. We all go and see the patient together. So what we decided to do is we did a rotation where it was one cardiologist, one um, heart surgeon, you know, and like an NP. Well, um, and as far as the patients, you know, they were okay doing telehealth, so they didn't mind. But as you might imagine, we didn't have echoes. We didn't have, we had to take from what our referrings had said, you know, to be the gospel. Well, that only lasted about a couple of weeks because then we opened back up and um, elective procedures became okay. And so our clinics then became um, probably two thirds patients coming back in and a third uh, telemedicine, just depending on the patient preference. And they were okay with coming in to do uh, testing. So we would, we would get testing. Um, and uh, you know, we're probably about 85%, 90% back. Even now with the uptick in, in Texas, where I am in, in Plano, Texas, as opposed to Dallas, I'm a little north of, of Dallas, it's about the same, about 85, 90% uh, back. That's fantastic. And Vino, how is it for you in, in, in Piedmont and, and Atlanta in general? As, uh, how have you adapted to, to COVID? Yeah, so we, um, we actually, um, as everybody knows, New York was really the hotspot. Atlanta also surged at that time period. We have 11 hospital system. We probably had 350 people 
in with COVID in our hospitals early on. So we did shut down for about six weeks completely. We just shut the whole program down. No more cases. We did do some telemedicine during that time period. And I remember talking to Mike Mack, who's with Molly there, and they were still, and Rob Smith and some of her surgeons, and they were still going strong with regular program, a regular elective program. Well, we did shut down for six weeks. During that time period, we were able to follow patients on a weekly basis through telemedicine. So every single patient who needed, um, who was preoperative, um, in their in their pathway, were completely followed virtually, and then we had a surge after we opened back up. And as you guys know, Atlanta opened up a little bit earlier. Georgia, the state of Georgia, did. We had a surge where we were doing somewhere around fifteen tavers a week because we had such a backlog of patients for that six week time period. We've now leveled off to pre COVID time period, where we're doing um, in between that number of cases from where we were, you know, nothing to 15, 16 a week. And so we're now averaged out where we're pre-COVID levels. We're also just like Molly, I would say about 80, 90% of our patients are in person. Um, and I think there's some something about TAVR patients that it's hard to get on telemedicine if they can walk, what their skin mm. texture is. Are they frail? Are they futile? Because on the phone and an iPhone or Doximity or whatever we were doing, I'm not sure that I could get an idea who is a high-risk patient or an extreme-risk patient because the phone that most people, the elderly people hold is just their face mm. and you can't see the, the abrasions on their hands or, or the discoloring of their eloquence that they're on. And so I actually prefer to see them inpatient. We do, they are allowed to come with one visitor. Um, and of course, everybody's wearing masks and everybody, we're not doing, we're not shaking their hands anymore uh, mm. nearly as much. We're doing the the elbow bumps and the fist bumps and stuff like that. But we're now basically have gone into that type of pathway. Um, so far, we're, we're back, I think, somewhere around 85 to 90%. Right. Now, both of you actually mentioned that you had uh, telemedicine facilities almost at the outset. So did you have the infrastructure already there or was that, that a skill set for, for both of you and a technology that you had to uh, scramble to bring together? Go ahead, Molly. Yeah, so um, it was all new. So, I mean, there was multiple different ways to do it out there and and there was not any one great way. Um, and basically for me, it depended on the patients themselves, what kind of phones they had, what kind of computers they had. And I would try every different one. I know I had some patients that I went from Doxy to Doximity to just iPhone and then to Google Duo. And then if all that didn't work, it was just picking up the phone and, and calling. So it's been, um, you know, it's been a learning experience for the telemedicine, but I'm with uh, Vino. It's hard to really get what a person is like, even over video. Um, so uh, an in-person, you know, consult is is still the best way. There's nothing better yeah, than that. It's the same thing. We and Molly, we tried the same thing. You know, um, we tried a variety of different things. There was a haiku within Epic. We have Epic system. Right. We tried that, but the internet connectivity wasn't great. We've now settled at Doximity. I, and today, all of my post-ops today, with the exception of two um, for my clinic, were done virtually. Yeah. Um, and all the inpatient, all the consults were done in person. So that's how my clinic was today. But we've settled at Doximity because it's easy, relatively easy to do. And it, and it doesn't require Apple, you know, Apple versus Apple and 
it's um or Samsung. So we've done that. Um, I think we have to find a better pathway that makes it easy for everybody. No, it sounds like you've got uh, a nice hybrid though with uh, with both the in-person consultation and the telemedicine processes going on. Now, what, you, you both mentioned that you had 85 to 90% of your, uh, your normal volume, which is uh, to me remarkable when you think of the general perception of going to hospital is associated with an increased risk of COVID. And I say general perception rather than reality. And so to that end, I'd like to hear how you've gone about reassuring patients. Maybe, Vino, you, you can yeah. start on this one. What, what, what's your strategy and what's the, the, the institution's strategy for dealing with the angst and hesitancy? No, I think that's a great question. I get asked that a lot. And more frequently than we getting asked that, our assistants who are at the front desk or on the phones talking to patients are getting, that, are getting asked that all the time. We assure them that a couple of things are being done so far that we know of, at least in our, at, the, at the Heart Institute here, there's been no transmission um, of a patient um, from a COVID patient to a non-COVID patient and have, has converted that patient to be COVID positive because they're relatively isolated. Our COVID patients are, as we tell our patients, are, are in one part of the hospital. They're not, every other room is, it could be a COVID patient versus a non-COVID patient. The same with our ICUs. We tell patients that everybody is screened at the door for temperature, and of course, they're, they're interviewed, so nobody is allowed to come in just randomly. And also, every patient, before they have their procedure, if they're inpatient, um, they get a COVID testing. So before you have a TAB or before you have a surgical valve or any other surgery, you're, you're tested if you're positive or negative. I actually have three patients who are tested positive, and we sent them home mm -hmm. uh, same day um, so that um, you know, they were in and out pretty quickly. And I follow them, and we're going to see them in a month. So we've been pretty vigilant about that um, as far as explaining to the patients what are the precautions that we're taking. And so far, the only problem that we've had as far as people canceling procedures is that family members can't be with them. Mm. And so we had uh, didn't allow for about a month. No family members were able to come. Then we opened up for about a month. We had one family member could come. And as of a week and a half ago, 10 days ago, we now have reinstituted that no family member can come. Mm. And so that, that's what scared patients more than the COVID uh -huh. part, yeah. that their loved ones weren't actually there with them at the end of the procedure. And that to me has, has um, we've had some cancellations specifically because of that. They're like, we'll see you when you allow our loved ones to come back. So that's not COVID related, but it's somewhat, it's not COVID specific, but it's COVID related in my opinion. Mm. Well, that, but that makes sense, doesn't it? A problem shared is a problem halved, and for, right. for the patients, right. uh, their angst shared with their spouse and loved ones. Molly, and, and, and for you, how have you gone about uh, sort of alleviating uh, patients' anxiety and fear? And uh, can you comment on yeah. that? Yeah, so it's very, it's, it's very similar to Vino, but um, um, we, we also didn't have family members in, but now we have one family member that can stay between hours of like seven and, and seven. And we have decided that we're not gonna change that because it caused so much angst amongst the patients to not have someone that, that we felt that they didn't do as well. So we still have one um, family member that can come in we do the same thing. We tell the, the family members that, um, or in the patients that um, we're very safe, you know, we check, 
when you come through the door, you get everything checked, your temperature, the, all the staff and physicians and everyone gets their temperature checked. We have different uh, doors that we're allowed to go into to, to catch um, people. Um, we, most of the interventionalists, actually, most of the interventionalists and the nurses on the floor um, who are taking care of the higher risk, like uh, aerosolized things. Everyone wears N95 now, like every day for, for 12 hours a day, I wear an N95 um, with another mask over it, actually, because we don't have many N95. So everybody is trying to preserve their N95. Um, we all have instituted ourselves. We all wear eye protection too. And much like Vino says, we haven't had any transmission between, um, you know, uh, patients and, uh, and uh, I mean, a COVID patient and non-COVID patient. We still don't have many COVID patients here. Actually, we have three and they're all on ECMO because they they get referred to us and it's on a different floor and, wow. and cordoned off. Um, That's amazing. So I, thought, I, didn't, I, I thought you guys might, especially in that area, you'd have more. We have... Probably 400 COVID patients in our network. No, it's, it's all downtown at the other uh, Baylor facility. Isn't that amazing? Um, yeah, it's, and again, we're a heart hospital. So um, COVID patients go to the other hospitals. Now, I would imagine that we're going to be overflow if it gets to that um, because we are a 100 bed ICU capable. Every bed is an ICU, can be an ICU bed, but um as of now, we just don't, we just don't have that amount. Now, like you, um, I think we were talking about this earlier. We have had patients who have come in. We test uh, 48 hours before they can come in for any procedure, any TEE, anything like that. Um, and we've had one or two or three, I think it's now probably four patients who have had surgery, not TAVERS, but have had surgery and um, and then be positive, you know, um, two days later because we check them two days after they have their surgery. So and because we know that the test may not be necessarily, you know, um, pick up a COVID positive patient. So we we take great pains to constantly monitor for these patients when they come in as an outpatient. That's very reassuring, uh, both for the staff and patients, Molly. If I can just continue with you for a second, if, because you said you're a hard hospital and you're largely dedicated, I would presume that you haven't made any changes to the way you prioritise your patients or any procedural strategies, or have you made some changes to the workflow as a consequence, uh, particularly the TAVA-related TAVA part of the procedure? Have you changed any aspects yeah. because of COVID? So we did at the beginning. So when we powered down and stopped doing uh, uh, what they called elective procedures. So, um, you know, those patients who were had critical AS or were very symptomatic, we did those TAVRs. But those who were like maybe class two and um, just normal severe AS, but didn't, you know, symptoms weren't so bad, we would call them weekly and make sure that they were okay. Um, and to be quite honest, 
um, when we opened back up for the first couple of weeks, we had to ramp up slowly with uh, transcatheter mm. valves because of the expense. I mean, there was a, we sort of uh, um, slowly got back up to, um, up to speed. And even now we kind of monitor it, you know, um, we, we took great pride into trying not to have to put, um, have to let go anybody at our hospital. So in doing that, we really financially watched everything that we did and tried to, to make sure that we were providing services, um, when needed and not just, uh, you know, because we could, I guess. So. so Molly, I have a question for you on that. Um, I know some centers have actually gone to Taver in patients that they would have otherwise done a surgery on had it not been for COVID to decrease the length of stay, um, to get the patient in and out of the system to quite honestly use less PPE, right? Cause for surgery, for me to do surgery on somebody, it's, there's a lot more humans involved. There's a lot more post-operative nursing care compared to a transcatheter valve who hopefully will go home within one to two days. Some centers have done that. We did not do that. If the patient needs surgery, we operate on them. If they need a tavern, we operate on them on their clinical basis. Did, what did you guys do? Because I know that I know of a couple of centers who actually went mm. to tavern on those patients. What what did you do that or what what was your thought Absolutely on Absolutely not. So interesting. Surgery makes uh well surgery actually makes more money than Taver does here. Um but um, we didn't change one way or the other. So if someone needed surgery, they got surgery. If someone needs TAVR, they get TAVR. We did not uh, uh, um, really change, you know, any way of, of how we uh, decide. So yeah, it'll be interesting, Ian, because there's been discussion about that a little bit. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see if that shakes out in any direction, one, one way or the other. You know, that, that's very a, regional. What's that, you know, that's very uh, regional um, yep. because in this in the parts of the country where reimbursement is not all that great for TAVR, um, it's actually detrimental for them to do, you know, more TAVRs than surgery. So I think that I think that that just depends on where you are. Yeah, I agree. I'm hoping that it's still largely a patient-centric approach. And uh, what exactly. it sounds like from you two, it's uh, what's the best option for the patient is what you're actually delivering. And, uh, and you know, just back on that question, though, have you changed your procedural strategy in any way uh, or the way you've prioritised patients? Have you shortened their length of stay? Is there anything that you've done to the procedure as a consequence of uh, uh, the, the COVID overhang? I don't think so. I think that um, at first we were bringing everybody in the day before to get a COVID testing before they did the TAVR, but now we've been able to um, bring in for AM admit and do, you know, go straight from home COVID testing in the morning, or they did a COVID testing at an outside facility within 48 hours and they come in. So we, we have tried to streamline it. We're about 70 to 80%. They don't go to the ICU and they go straight to a regular floor. And so I would say we haven't changed anything. Uh, quite honestly, the, the, the only part that became difficult was trying to get their COVID testing before they came, you know, 48 hours. We have 72-hour window. Getting that done, and we have people who come from a larger geographic area, so having them come for a day or two and stuff, that was a little bit challenging for us. 
Um, it is a little bit tougher so that if they get their outpatient TAVR screening, I'm sorry, COVID screening, it takes a couple of three, four days to get the results back sometimes. If they do it in-house, it's an hour and a half test. So that challenge, I think we're going to have to figure out on a national level. And my guess is, it'll, like Molly said, it might be geographic. That's, that's what's been hard for us. That's why in surgery, it's been easier for us to bring them in the night before, get their hour and a half test, uh, hour and a half testing, and we know immediately. Mm. We've got to get that, I think, nailed down a little bit more. And it'll be interesting to see other sites as we start talking more about this. Mm. How do we get a consistent hour and a half testing the day before a procedure instead of waiting two, three days to get the results back? That's been problematic. So yeah. is that your rapid test? The so hour and rapid, a half? So the rapid test can be done in the hospital, but rapid test is not a, if you go through a drive, if you go through a drive through COVID testing, like you have in the news that we see in Houston and Dallas, that test is not an hour and a half, Molly. Yeah, no, 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 I know. So what we do, yeah, so we, so we have a test that you can get in the ER, a rapid test. We have that too. Right. We don't use that for surgery. So, because we don't necessarily trust it as much. So what we do is all of our TAVRs and surgeries and and TEEs and everything, we do, they have to go to pre-admission testing and, or we call it PAT. I mean, we have a standard PAT, but for COVID testing, we have it, they drive up outside our ER and we get the test. And because it's within our hospital still, Mm. we get it within... 24 hours. So it comes back within 24 hours. We just say 48 just to make sure. Um, and so that's every patient who gets a procedure. Right. They have and we're doing the same thing. But if they don't do it in your hospital, if they, if they live 150 miles away, for them mm-hmm. to drive here becomes yeah. difficult. So they do it there locally. That's the problem. That takes a while to get back. Right. So we exactly. have a lot of things to still figure out on the testing part of it, but we haven't changed our TAVR procedural components yeah. right now um, because we, we we think that should remain with the highest quality and we're scared to deviate from that level. No, that's good. And, and look, we're talking about testing there, but the rapid tests, of course, have reduced sensitivity and uh, setting aside that even a well-done PCR really depends on where in the course of the illness the test is done in exactly. order to determine its sensitivity. And that's when it, it is a highly specific test. So the, the rapid test faces more problems. But I think obviously we will adapt to that. Could I s- switch gears a little bit and ask two more questions? First of all, we, we, we mentioned before about the heart team. Um, I was recently on holidays last week and uh, stayed at a friend's house who's a avid social distancer and He's a pathologist and um, part of a, um, um, a, a cancer uh, um, group. And uh, I noticed that they did their tumour board all virtually. So the surgeons, the physicians, the oncologists, the radiologists, the uh, radiation therapists, and even the, uh, uh, the microscopic images were all shown beautifully uh, during the uh, uh, during the tumor board virtually. Are you doing your heart teams uh, by virtual or are you still shoulder to shoulder? Mm-hmm. Molly? Um, so so for us, we have um, a lot of heart team meetings. We have not only just the, the tavern mitral heart, um, heart team meetings, we also have um, a couple of high-risk conferences, which is uh, also CT 
surgery and, and cardiology related. And so what we have done, we have a huge auditorium. And so we hold all of our conferences in this huge auditorium and we have almost like an IMAX screen that can put six or seven different windows up on it. So we do our conferences up on there and, um, and then, you know, they can call in through Zoom and whatever. So um, we can there spread out. We have a few people there. We can spread out and do Zoom and they can see everything on the. Uh, so that's how we've been doing. We just moved into our auditorium. Right. Ours, is, ours is quite different, actually. So we did have in-person meetings. And um, what we decided to do is Monday, Tuesday, we do clinics surgeons, cardiologists, in-person clinics. Thursday, Friday um, for uh, Taver on Thursday, uh, Mitral on Friday. We actually have a, a now have gone to WebEx. <clears throat> and so on the WebEx um, will be the uh, valve coordinators. It will be, um, you know, our imagers, our CT imagers, our echo imagers. It'll be the surgeons and the cardiologists. And we're doing it all virtually now and it works awesome. And so we've been, in fact, we're probably going to stay with this even post COVID and well, well past COVID because it's working for everybody so well hmm. that um, we're going to probably just stick with that. So, and it allows us for people to dial in and out. In fact, what it also does, and we've, we've opened this up to our referrings. So that if our referrings want to call in and talk about their patient, we'll give them, we'll send them the link and we'll discuss their patients first so they can even hear in how we make that decisions. So that whole WebEx has worked phenomenal for us. And we're going to stick with it. I absolutely love it. Um, there's not that much chatter in the room. Everybody's concentrating on the computer. And so I'm really sold on it. And so we've, we've used WebEx for this. And we're, we've all decided we're not going to go away from it. So. That sounds like a, a really useful adaptation that you'll, you'll keep going forward. Yeah, I think um, so. Two, two quick words on clinical trials. How are you going with clinical trial recruitment? I know this is a topic unto itself, but... Uh, um, you obviously had to adapt to that. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's been challenging. Um, I think it's been challenging on a on a couple of fronts. And and um, in fact, we had a um, a call with the FDA from through the TBT registry. We had a call recently on this. We had a couple of hundred people listen in on this, and that there's been a lot. Of, and I've been talking a lot with the FDA about this. So there's clinical trials for us have been have been a major problem. A couple of things come out of it. First of all, some of the earliest uh, people to be furloughed were research staff um, because you do have to cut the budget somewhere somehow and that's the first thing so there we have um, a lot less research people now I think it'll come back up soon hopefully but they're being you know they're taking a week of week off at a time so there are less people available um, number two um, COVID uh, COVID research trials have inundated our system and wow. so um, so there we're prioritizing COVID testing and so, therefore, other trials get a little bit lower priority right now because of that reason. Thirdly, patients are a little bit, because of the telemedicine, It's nobody ha can figure that out yet. So, the consenting is a problem mm. because technically you're not supposed to consent on telemedicine. You have to do it in person. Um, and then follow-up echoes are becoming difficult because a lot of people can't come back for echoes. There was a time mm. when we weren't doing echoes um, as an outpatient. We had shut that down. Only inpatient patients, inpatients were getting echoes. And so scheduling those follow-up visits were difficult. And then you miss your window because you have a certain window to get that in. And of course it becomes a, 
SAE if you do, um, you know, or, you, you know, you fall out, you have to write up why you're missing out of the window. So there's a lot of issues going on. I've had multiple conversations and webinars with Bram Zuckerman and Sheng Fu from the FDA. And we are so concerned about the research aspect of it. Uh, later in August, we're actually going to have a two-day think tank um, uh, coordinated by myself and John Carroll from the TBT uh, registry, FDA, uh, Marty Leon and Mike Mack from the Heart Valve Collaboratory. So we're actually putting together um, two half-day think tank specifically on Ian, exactly what you're talking about, re cardiovascular research in the era of COVID today mm -hmm. and beyond. So I think it's for some of us, like Molly and I are very much into research. This is something that we are seriously worried about, how we can get good data and provide these devices uh, for our constituents, which we think is radically important. So mm, and and uh, uh, besides the workflow and all these issues, it's differentiating future clinical events, uh, right. both uh, COVID-related cardiovascular complications right. and those uh, device-related. So it's a, it's a big challenge. Molly, uh, do you have the same feelings as Vino here and uh, thoughts on clinical trials? Yeah, absolutely. It's a problem. I mean, um, you know, we're still trying to enroll people into our clinical trials, uh, but it is a little bit harder because it's, you know, more visits and people don't want to come back for echoes and things like that. We had to, I mean, sometimes we have to strong arm people to come back for their, uh, for their cl uh, clinical follow-up. So it is a huge, huge problem um, to, to, to get these people in and not just that, um, a little bit less with uh, TAVR, but like with the mitral and tricuspid, you know, these are all EFS trials and they bring whole teams of people in to, uh, you know, to help us out with these uh, trials. And so, you know, how much do you want people who are flying all over the exactly. country, yeah. you know, to come in. So it's something that we think about a lot. We are still doing, um, I mean, all of our clinical trials have opened back up, um, but it's something that we um, worry about and, you know, explain to patients and, and uh, you know, our enrollment in all of our clinical trials are a little bit down because of that. Yeah. Ian, what do you think and what have you, what have you seen from Boston's end? Well, actually, yeah, so we, we have seen a dip there in uh, the clinical trial recruitment, but it's slowly picking up, you know, yeah. which, is, which is good. But uh, you, you've covered all of the issues, uh, the, the compliance issues to follow up windows and uh, understanding what, what uh, events are really related to COVID and what events are related uh, to the underlying procedure that's going to be a challenge. And just the monitoring of the clinical data. There's there's so many aspects, and so I look forward to your uh, yep. your two day workshop. I think it's very important. Uh, and I agree with that. You're right about that. And I just want to say the FDA has been unbelievably welcome to these suggestions. And Dom uh, was actually on a recent webinar um, from Boston, at representing Boston Scientific, that we did with the TBT registry. So I think all of us are trying to figure our way out of it because we all believe that research is what's going to be the next. Um, you know, one year, five year, 10 year, how we make this this disease process get better and better for our patients. Perfect. Well, look, I, I should wrap this up. You've, you've been, both been incredibly generous with your time and offered me more time than, than, than I uh, expected. Uh, it is very clear that you're both adapting to this challenge. And if I can paraphrase that uh, Charles Darwin line, 
it's not the strongest or the smartest that uh, that survive catastrophes. It's those who actually can adapt to those catastrophes. So it's very clear that you're adapting very well, and obviously there's still a lot of challenges ahead of us. So. Uh, Vino, Molly, thank you very much for your time. And uh, it's clear that you and your teams are doing a remarkable job in these trying times, these unprecedented times, as we said before. And finally, again, I'm Ian Meredith. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on this uh, edition of our uh, Structural Heart uh, podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Thank you, Ian.